Yeah. So our new series is called Under Review, and when I was growing up, they were just getting the whole instant replay thing kind of dialed in, and it was one of those things where it seemed like for a while that they put every play under replay, and consequently, NFL football games would take about as long as a British cricket match. They'd last like three days, and they would never end. Eventually, though, we got it kind of dialed into the system that we have now, where a, a coach is provided with a red challenge flag, and they can throw the flag when they want to challenge, challenge a play call, and then they put the play under review. And if, if it comes back the opposite of what the coach hoped, then they lose a timeout. If not, then they get the benefit of what they were hoping was going to happen. And so it's a pretty good system. But even with all the technology and camera angles and everything that we have for instant replay now, sometimes they still get it wrong, as Ed Hockley proved the other night in the Bengals-Broncos game. Right? Did you see this? Where, where they reviewed the play. It was obviously a fumble. He looked at it for a long time, still said it was an incomplete pass. And then I guess because God's in heaven and he's just, on the next play, the quarterback fumbled and the Broncos won the game. That's, Yeah. I'm a, I'm, I'm a lifelong Bengals fan, but I even knew that that was righteous and just, all right? That was the way that should have turned out. Uh, we utilize instant replay in a lot of different sports now. They have it in tennis, which is weird. I don't know if you've seen that. They utilize it in basketball now for last-second shots and, and to look at the time and things like that. They also use it in baseball, which I'm totally against. I don't think that instant replay has any place in baseball because I like to yell at umpires. That's part of the game. That's the way it goes. But the idea in general is a good one. Take a look at what actually happened, and they make the right call, make the right judgment, look back, and then move forward. So we arrive at this new year, and there are different types of people in the room. There's, there's resolution people, then there are those of us who the only resolution have is we are resolved not to even make resolutions, because if we've learned anything, is that we don't keep our resolutions. So regardless of wherever you fall on that spectrum, you're welcome here today as we jump into this under-review series. And even though nothing magical happened on New Year's Eve, no, nobody got a, a clean slate on New Year's Day, that's not the way that the world works, we, we tend to sometimes think like it did. But the reality is this, all the calories that we took in between like Halloween and New Year's Day, they're all still working for us or against us, however you want to look at that. The overspending that we did doesn't magically just go away. None of the credit card companies reset our balances as a gift to us for the new year, even though we wish they would. The relational disasters of 2015 are likely still here in the first few days of 2016. What I mean is this, whatever spiritual, financial, relational, or physical hole that we dug in 2015 we're probably still in at the beginning of 2016. But at the same time, there's nothing wrong with having a line in the sand moment, a moment where you, where you say, okay, enough's enough. It's going to be different from this point on. Here's what I've discovered, though. Writing resolutions down, and some of us are very type A about this. You've got it laminated and posted all over the house for everybody to see, and some of us aren't. But writing them down is the easy part, right? The, the hard part is actually doing them. And I think one of the reasons that, that, that we have a hard time with resolutions is we forget a key component about resolutions, and it's this. Resolutions must be preceded by reflections. We've got to look back in order to move forward. We have to be willing to put the past under review if we want the future to look any different than the past. And that's the part a lot of us don't want to work through, because looking at the past can be really, really painful. I mean, one example is this. I don't even like to watch basketball on CBS Sports for one reason, because before every college basketball game they show the same shot by the same man Christian Leitner that was made when I was 11 years old and broke my heart and it breaks my heart every time I have to see it since and so I don't like to look back at those old tapes but old tapes aren't just the painful moments 
Old tapes are oftentimes what we call a highlight reel, right? We look back, we put a play on highlight reel just so we can see it over and over again. So there are plays that are etched into our memory because of that. My, my son Eli refuses to catch a football with both hands because of one man. His name's Odell Beckham. Because he's seen so many highlights of Odell Beckham catching a football with, with one hand, he refuses, to, he refuses to do that. So this isn't going to be all about painfully going over all of our past losses, but it's also not going to be about glossing over all those and just paying attention to the wins. It's got to be about both because there are errors on both sides. See, some of us are prone to kind of paralysis by analysis where we just churn over our past mistakes over and over and over again. We won't let it go and we just continue to revisit the past And a lot of times, if we're really, really honest, it becomes this subtly narcissistic thing that we do where it becomes all about us and we refuse to live in the present because we're always looking at the past. But we also can't just gloss over all those things. We have to actually look at those things. Because for most of us, this past year, 2015, probably had a little bit of both, wins and losses all at the same time. And there's something that can be learned from both of those. So in this series, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look. We're going to put our lives under review. We're going to take an account of where we actually are right now. Or we can put this off. We can procrastinate. But the Bible teaches that there will be a day when all of us will have our lives placed under, placed under review. Wouldn't it be better to go ahead and start that process now than wait until later? So when we take an honest look at our life, the good thing is, is we get to make a decision. And it's on us. We get to make a decision. Do I want my life to be any different than what I'm currently experiencing? And if so, in what ways and in what areas? And maybe you're going, no, I'm, you know what? I'm perfectly content. Or maybe you're going, no, it's a total disaster. I want something different. Either way, your strategy is perfectly designed to achieve the results you are now experiencing. Right? So for most of us, we can look at our life, put it under review and go, yeah, there's some things I need to rethink. There's some things that I need to repent of, turn around from, resolve to walk away from. See, all throughout the Bible, there's this pattern, and the pattern goes like this. God's faithful, and people forget. God is faithful, and people forget. Over and over and over again, that's the pattern in the Bible, and that's the pattern in our lives as well. When I say forget, what I mean is this. Forgetting means losing trust in God's intentions. Looking at God and going, you know what, I know you have plans, I know you have intentions, I know you have a purpose for my life, but I think I can do better. I don't trust you, I don't think you actually want what's good for me, I have a better idea. And over and over again, people in the Bible take that attitude towards God and do their own thing. The Hebrew people did this after God miraculously delivered them from Egypt, they forgot about God. The psalmist said it this way, they forgot God, their Savior, And for some of us, if we're really honest, that could be the banner over 2015. I forgot God, my Savior. Some of us, it's more than 2015. Could be a whole decade. I I forgot God, my Savior. And here's the thing. As people, we are always looking for a Savior. Always. We're always looking for potential Saviors everywhere we go. Someone or something to give us value and worth and, and significance and meaning and purpose. And most of our lives, what we do is we bounce around trying out different potential Saviors. And one doesn't work, so we move on to the next one. One comes up empty, so we move on to the next one. But the problem is, every time we do that, there's usually some carnage in our wake. See, when we forget that God is our Savior and we start to believe that we can find our identity, our value, and our worth in other people or other things, things fall apart. So sometimes we fall into the trap of believing money. Money's the thing that'll save me. Money's the thing that will deliver me. And money comes up empty time and time again. But we fall into the lie, the trap of believing, well, it's just because I just need a little bit more. But it's never enough. It can't deliver. Or we'll put the pressure on our marriage. We'll put our spouse under the microscope and demand that they be our savior. 
And nobody can live up to that pressure. And then when they don't live up to those expectations, we get bitter and angry and then we destroy the marriage. Kids, kids make terrible saviors. Kids make good kids. They're, they're really bad messiahs. But when we put all the pressure on our children to give us our identity and our worth and our value through their performance on a field or in a classroom or in social life, whatever that is, we destroy our relationship with our kids. Physical appearance. Has anybody ever looked in the mirror and gone, yep, perfect. That's enough. No, nobody, nobody's ever done that that's not a jerk, right? Like nobody's ever, nobody's ever done that. There's always something more that we could fix or that we don't like, or, but it's, it's never enough. It never delivers. Most of our lives are spent trying to get from people and things what we can only get from God, our Savior. And God knows that. He knows that about us. One time God said to this, this man, this famous man named, named Solomon, he was, he was King David's son, he followed in his footsteps, he became king, king over Israel, very, very famous. If anybody ever experimented with different saviors, potential saviors in his life, it was Solomon. He tried it all, and early on in Solomon's life, God said this to him, if my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, and I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. We're going to spend the rest of today on that verse right there. If you're a resolution person, that's a verse worth memorizing. Because here's the reality. We all, we all forget. We all mess up. We all lose track of God's intentions for us at different times. We forget God, our Savior. We end up in deep water. But this verse reveals God's promises and intentions towards us. And he begins by saying, if. Whenever you see if, there's usually a then that's going to follow at some point. And whenever you see an if-then statement in the Bible, that means there's going to be a lot of application that we need to pay attention to. And it's usually going to involve kind of a cost-benefit. And so the if is going to represent the cost. So, so if you take a look at your life, you put it under review, and you don't like where you are, okay, if, and he says, if my people who are called by my name, that's an awesome phrase, my people called by my name, in other words, for those whose identity is found in me, the one true God. In other words, for those who put their faith, their trust in God as their Savior, there's no need to run around searching for your identity and your worth and your value and your significance and your purpose in other people or other things because all of those things are found in your relationship with the one true God. You've been called by His name. You are His and He lays claim to you. He chose you. In the New Testament, this is the concept called adoption, which by definition means you were chosen. God picked you to put his name on you, to claim you. You're not an orphan. You have a father who loves you, wants you, and chose you. So why should we run anywhere else to try to make a name for ourselves when we've been given our name? But we do that all the time, don't we? God says, if, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves... This is that under review process. It means to see yourself for who you really are. And this is something we don't really want to do. It's why we avoid going to the doctor, right? I don't want to know, I don't want to know, I'm fine, I'll be okay. We don't want to see ourselves for who we really are. We want to see ourselves for who we wish we were and pretend that everything's okay. To humble ourselves means to see ourselves for who we really are, which means to start with this, and this is what we work on on Friday nights and shift. The fundamental building block of the whole thing is simply this. There is a God, and guess what? I'm not him. I'm not him. He's bigger than me, stronger than me, he's wiser than me, he knows more than me, he's more than me, and all that seems really, really simple, but there's a reason why the phrases God complex and playing God exist, because we do that all the time, don't we? We have many times in our life all lived like the words of that famous poem, Invictus, are actually true. I'm the master of my fate, I'm the captain of my soul. And when we take over the steering wheel of our life and our soul and our fate, you know what we tend to do? Crash everything. We tend to run our life right into the rocks. 
And then when we do, who do we, who do we call first? Who do we reach out to first? Who do, we, who do we throw up a what? Prayer to first. And God says that's a good thing. You should do that. He says, and pray and seek my face. For some reason, it's almost like we have something hardwired into us that when we find ourselves in a tight spot, we instinctively reach out towards God even when we say we don't believe in him. God says that's a good thing. You should do that. But he says don't just pray. He says seek my face. And I think that's a really interesting phrase. And I, as a parent, I totally get that. Because when I'm saying something to my children that I think is really important, that really matters, you know what I say to them? Give me your eyes. Look right here. Look in my face. Now, why do I do that? Because I'm about to say words to them. They just need to hear the words, right? Why do they need to see my face as I speak the words? Well, because my face acknowledges my intentions towards them, my attitude towards them. It's in my face that they can see my love and my compassion, my seriousness, my concern, whatever it is, maybe all of those things. So God doesn't want us to just coldly listen to his word. He wants us to seek his face and to really see and feel and understand his intentions towards us, to really know what he wants for us. So when we arrive at a place in our life, like many of us have, where we realize, you know what? Not a very good master of my fate. I'm not a very good captain of my soul. When things get really rough, when we have this instinct to call out to God, God says, yes, do that. Pray, but not only that, seek my face. I want you to really see what I want for you and how much I love for you in my face. See, even when I'm disciplining my kids and my face is stern towards them, that's not because I hate them. It's the opposite, right? It's because I love them. The only reason I even have rules and parameters and boundaries for my kids is because I love them. I don't have those for the neighbor kids. I can just send them home, right? But I love my kids. I want good for my kids. And so I establish rules and boundaries for my kids. See, Andy Stanley said it this way. Any rules that God would give us are confirmation of his love, not conditions for his love. God's not going, follow the rules and then I'll love you. He's going, I love you, so follow my rules. It's a very different thing. So God anchors all of this so far in our identity as his children, chosen, adopted, loved. In other words, this is all grace. And like any good father does, after making that very clear, I love you, you're my child, I chose you, I want good for you, he's now going to to deliver truth to the children that he loves when he says this, and turn from their wicked ways. This is not complex. This is God as a loving father saying to his children who are running away from him, hey, stop it. Cut it out. Come back to me. Repent. Rethink your entire strategy for life. Look at the path you're walking down. Turn around and come back to me. You forgot about who I am. You're lost. You lost your trust in me. You forgot about my good intentions towards you. You tried to take over the wheel of your life and you're bouncing off all the guardrails and you're going to crash very soon. Stop it and turn around. This is a good, loving father delivering good, loving truth to his children. So as you take account of your life and put it under review, all of us in this room, if we're honest and willing to be with ourselves, we'll find places in our life where we are not on the right path. We're not living consistently with what we know God's purpose is for us. And the reasons we do that, man, they abound. I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but those are all symptoms of one root disease, and it's called lack of trust. We lose trust in God. I mean, honestly, let's be honest. Rarely do we ever wake up in the morning and go, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to ruin my life. Right? Like, very rarely does anybody go, you know what, today I'm just going to crash the whole thing. I'm going to blow the whole thing up. Sometimes, but very rarely is that what we state out loud that we're going to do. But the result of our actions is the same, right? Whether it's intentional or not. See, the reason we financially get off track is because ultimately, ultimately, the bottom of that is we don't trust God. 
I don't trust God. God, I don't think you want what's good for me, so I'll take the reins, I'll do my own thing, and I'll walk down my own path. And the path that we choose, any path other than the one God points us to, God defines as his word, not mine, as a wicked path. It's a wicked path. Literally translates, it's destructive, it's evil, it's wrong, and it's of poor quality. In other words, it's not good for you. And God, because he wants good for his children, says, look, don't walk down a wicked path because it's bad for you. Not trying to spoil your fun, it's going to destroy you. The reason we get out of bounds sexually is because we live under the illusion that God is trying to take something from us instead of the fact that God is actually trying to give us something very, very good. Jim talked about this back at Christmas in regards to food, right? I mean, God could have made a very simple, a very easy way for us to get the nutrients and nutrition that we need by making us like cows that can just go out and eat grass all day, every day. It would taste terrible, but we would get what we needed. But for some reason, God gave us these things called taste buds. And for some reason, God made it to where the cow in the field tastes way better than the grass in the field, right? And a million other things that we experienced for the past couple months of all the good foods that we've been eating. It's almost like God is saying, here's grace upon grace. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build in so much more pleasure and so much more joy into this simple thing called you eating food and partaking in food. It's almost as if I love you and want good for you as, as my children. He does the exact same thing with sex. God could have made it like he did with many creatures to where there's barely any contact or hardly any pleasure in regards to sex. But for human beings, he built in this over-the-top spiritual oneness and joy that can be experienced between one man and one woman in the context of marriage. And why did he do that? Grace upon grace. He's not trying to take anything from us. He's trying to give something to us. One of my kiddos recently asked me, hey, hey, dad, why did God make it so that babies are made like that? And I said, because God is a good, wise, awesome, loving, creative, heavenly father. My kid looked at me like, you're insane, you know, and walked away. The reason we start destroying our bodies is because we don't think we can find comfort, peace, or security in God. We have to find it through abusing food and substances. We walk down sinful, wicked paths because we don't trust God. We think we know better than Him. And God says lovingly, but sternly, like any good father would, stop it. Come back to me. I want good for you. So to sum it up, if we can recognize that we belong to God, that he wants good for us, and we can take an honest look at our lives, what paths we're on, and then make a decision to turn away from those things, to turn around, and to walk back towards God, here's the then, part of the if-then statement, here's the, here's the benefit, then God says, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin. And here doesn't mean just to listen, it means to turn your face toward and give full attention. God says, seek my face and I'll turn my face towards you. I'll give you full attention and I'll act on your behalf. So when God's children, who are call, called by his name, humble themselves and pray and seek his face and turn from their wicked ways, God pays attention and he acts on our behalf and he does what? He forgives us. He forgives our sins. God's desire is not to punish us. If God's desire was to punish us, he would have never initiated towards us at all. He would have never revealed himself. He would have never spoken to us. And he certainly would have never sent his one and only son, Jesus, to us to pay the price for our sins on a cross and to raise him back to life. He would have never gone through all that. He would have simply just left us to our own devices, let us destroy ourselves during this life, and punished us on the back end for all of our poor decisions. But that's not what God does. God reveals his good intentions for us in that he sent his one and only son for us before we could ever take one step towards him he took all the steps towards us 
He's done everything that was needed to forgive us. It's finished and it's complete and it's available to everyone. See, the primary evidence that someone is a follower of Jesus, a Christian, saved, redeemed, whatever word you want to use in a million more, is a life of repentance. Martin Luther said it this way, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. And that's what this under review series is all about. Living the kind of life where we're constantly under review, we're constantly repenting, rethinking, and choosing a better way and coming back to God because we're prone to wander, we're prone to forget about him. And we can only do this because of what Jesus has done for us. See, God has always been interested in forgiving his people. He didn't suddenly shift gears in the New Testament. So let me, let me like put to bed a misnomer about God that a lot of people carry around. And it's that in the Old Testament, God was like really cranky and mean and wrathful. And then in the New Testament, he became enlightened and politically correct and graceful. No. The Bible's clear that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Malachi 3.6 says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Hebrews 13.8 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. God has always been in the business of forgiving his children. The Old Testament was all about people being forgiven by grace through faith, looking forward to Jesus one day coming on a cross and paying for their sins. It's faith. The God we worship is 100% grace and 100% truth. You can't have one without the other is what I'm learning. I mean, I mean, think about it. What if God just only gave us grace and just went, I'll, I'll forgive you for all your sins, but never said I'll point you to a better way to actually live your life. Would that be a loving thing to do? Some of us think it would be, but it wouldn't be. Play it out. That would be some weird version of enabling sin-addicted people to continue to destroy themselves, minus the eternal consequences on the back end. And that sounds nice in theory, but the reality is, this is the way it plays out in real life, sin always leads to the death of things. Sometimes quickly, sometimes it takes a while, but it always leads to the death of things. And God loves us. He's, he's a good father. He doesn't want the death of our family. He doesn't want the death of our relationships. He doesn't want the death of anything in our life. He wants life for us and freedom for us and joy for us because we're his children. But on the flip side, if God simply pointed us to truth without grace and said, this is what you should do, now go do it, but didn't empower us by his grace by forgiving us from our guilt and our shame and our regret and just weighed us down with expectations just became a loud voice yelling in our ear, do better or else, that wouldn't be helpful either. We'd get crushed under that. That'd be impossible. We need 100% grace. We need 100% truth, which is precisely what Jesus is full of. Jesus came from the Father full of, not 50-50, 100% of grace and truth. So not only can we be forgiven, but we can be forgiven and have a better kind of life. And the verse is not finished. Let's put the whole thing together. If my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their, what's the word? Land. God's not only, this is, this is grace upon grace as well, he's not only talking about how we as individuals can be forgiven and redeemed and restored and healed and renewed in our heart, soul, mind and strength, all of that, but when God's children collectively repent, God says, I'll heal your land doesn't take a genius to look around and see that our land, this country, is sick, needs healing. Our land, our country, is falling apart at its seams, is coming apart at a foundational level. I don't have to read you the laundry list of death and dysfunction for you to know that. Just get on a website at some point today and look up the news from the past two hours, and I'm sure it'll become clear. 
It's really, really, really vital for God's children, Christians, to understand that our nation, this country, will not be healed through legislation, lawmaking, or electing the right people. All of those are good things, and we should pursue all of those things, but those things cannot change the condition of people's hearts. Jesus would call that cleaning the outside of the cup while the inside of the cup remains filthy and dirty. The only way this land gets healed is if this land collectively repents. There is no other way. So for Christians, this message is to us. It's not to them. This isn't a message where Christians go, yeah, they all need to repent. No. Who's this addressed to? If my people who are called by my name, who's that? That's us, those who claim to be followers of Jesus. This is an us issue. In other words, it's our job to repent of our sin, to put our life under review before we ever call anyone else to repent of their sin, which we are called to do, but not until we've put our life under review. But we do it the opposite. We're very perceptive at seeing the speck in someone else's eye, while meanwhile there's a log coming out of ours. That's what Jesus said. So if you're a resolution person, that's all great, but before you get cracking on all those resolutions and goals and hopes and dreams, we need to remember, we need to look back, and not only this past year, but what we really need to identify are the patterns in our lives. And we do that by asking questions. So here's a couple. Where have we done well and what will it take to do better? Where have we done well? Where did we get some wins under our belt? Where are there some places in this past year where we go, yeah, you know what, that, that was a good thing. And what got you there? I'll tell you what I bet got you there. Leaning entirely on grace and then empowered by that grace, walking in truth, humbly. What did not get you there was arrogance and thinking that you could do it by yourself apart from the grace of God. So dance with the one who brung you. Don't shift strategies now, right? Lean entirely on grace and walk entirely in truth. Here's another question. Where have we done poorly? And here's some of the areas we're going to look at in this series. We're going to look at finances. Where have we done poorly financially? What poor decisions have we made? Why did we make them? And what have the consequences been? What's the fallout been? Or physically, just like anything else we have, this body that we have is a gift from God. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says it this way, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So what we do with our bodies or what we don't do with our bodies or what we feed our bodies is not just a physical matter. It's a spiritual matter. So whatever goals or resolutions you have physically, those are awesome. We should all have those. That's great. But make it about so much more than a number on a scale, the weight on a barbell, or your time in a 10K. We get the opportunity to bring God glory with our bodies this year we got to look at relationally how have we done some of us what we need to do is we need to take an honest look at the voices that we're allowing into our lives and allowing to influence us proverbs says it really clearly whoever walks with the wise becomes wise but the companion of fools will suffer harm you look back at 2015 go i suffered a lot of harm you might want to look at the relationships that you have are we willing to put our relationships under review? Maybe not. Maybe some of us are going, nope, I'm not in. Okay. But do not walk into 2016 expecting different results than 2015 if you're going to do the same things you did in 2015. That's the definition of insanity. We have to be willing to put the past under review if we want the future to look any different. And that might be painful, but we are God's children and we're called by his name, which means this, and this is important, the past loses its power over us and actually becomes useful to us. 
Some of us, we're going to walk through this series and we're going to see some minor places of adjustment. Others of us, we're going to look at this and go, yeah, the whole thing needs an overhaul. All of it. All of it. But the question remains, are we willing to push it all to the center of the table in hopes of taking hold of something better? See, when the past still has the power to condemn you and shame you and overwhelm you, it can break you and destroy you. But when all of that's been removed because of what Jesus did for you on a cross... Man, the past just becomes a really good teacher, and then you can learn from it and honestly move forward. You either win or you learn, right? See, how does the saying go? Those who don't know history's mistakes are doomed to repeat them. Now, let's real honest. Does that sound like anyone's life? Does that sound like anyone's life going, yeah, I've been busy repeating all of the same mistakes over and over and over again, the same shame, the same regret, So what we're going to walk through in this series is this. Maybe what we need is a thorough review of the past instead of pretending that it's not there. Let's stop putting our head in the sand. Let's call it what it is. And then true repentance based on grace as opposed to what we often do, which is these white-knuckled efforts to improve and be better on our own, based on our own strength. Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, dealt with this tension between looking back at the past but not allowing the past to have a have power or have a hold on us read these verses that he wrote and as I'm doing that the ushers are going to pass communion out because one of the things that we need to start this new year with is remembering what Jesus has done for us so that we can move into the future so let me read these verses to you take take communion hang on to that you can take it anytime during the song we're going to sing right after this And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That was your past. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. This is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. And we have a tendency to forget all of that. So God gives us these great reminders. You trace through the entire Bible and you see all these feasts and you see all these rituals and traditions, all of which were designed to remind people of what God had promised and what God had done in spite of the fact that we forgot him. And none as poignant as the one that Jesus gave us called the Lord's Supper, Communion. Take some bread, pass it out. Remember his broken body that absorbed the punishment that we deserve. Take some wine, pass it out, drink it. Remember his blood that that covers all of our sin and shame and regret. Some of us walked in here today to church just hoping that we could get a clean slate, just hoping we could be made new, just hoping we could get rid of the shame of the past. And the only way that happens is by putting your faith and your trust in Jesus The one who went to a cross and rose from the grave for you to conquer the power of sin and death in your life. You can have that today. For the rest of us who we have that, we forget that all the time, don't we? So we need this reminder to be reminded that our past can no longer condemn us, that it can only teach us, and that we can confidently move into the future because of what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. Father. 
I pray for anyone in this room who came in here today just going, man, I, I know it's a new year, but I feel like the same old me. Going, I want something new, and I hope there's something new available to me, but I'm, I'm not sure there is. God, I pray for anybody who's still walking around under the weight of their past mistakes, sin, shame, regret, that you'll remove that weight today, Father, because you're the only one who can do that. God, for those of us who we know all this, we just forget all the time, God, could this year be a, a year where we're constantly and consistently living a life of repentance, of always bringing our life back into alignment with what you say is best and true because we trust you. We trust you as a good father who has good, good intentions towards us. God, thank you that you love us. We know this because you sent your one and only son for us to die on a cross, pay the price for our sins so that we could be with you forever in your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.